we are going to take a few weeks as we lead up to Palm Sunday and Easter and look at some passages to hopefully help prepare our hearts for thinking about that, meditating on that, and experiencing it more deeply. And we're going to start this morning, I want to start with Exodus chapter 12, and the passage I'm going to draw from is in the bulletin, so if you're here and you don't have a Bible, you can just follow what I'll be referring to in the bulletin. Uh, I, I like to ask this question from time to time, and this is a very uh, appropriate Sunday to ask this question. Before Jesus came, before Jesus' life and death and resurrection, what was the biggest thing that happened in the Bible? Uh, or we could say, what, what was the biggest, greatest act of rescue and redemption in the Bible? And it's the Exodus and uh, if, you, if you read in the Old Testament, I mean, whether it's Psalms or the prophets, it keeps referring back to that lots of times in the Psalms, quite a bit in the prophets. I'm the God who rescued you. I brought you out of slavery. I, I delivered you. Biggest act of redemption uh, before Jesus comes. And a lot of people have, as they've um, prepared their hearts to celebrate Easter, they've started with Passover. And so I wanted to do that this morning. This, this is the text that is about the plague that finally sort of breaks the camel's back, if we can put it that way, for Pharaoh to yield and to release the Hebrews, to release the Israelites to leave Egypt and follow Moses out. Um, this comes, what you're about to read about is the preparation for the tenth plague of ten plagues. Uh, these are plagues that have affected every aspect of Egyptian life. The tenth is going to be the worst one. We're sort of picking up mid-description, but it begins with God speaking to Moses, giving him instructions to relay to the Israelites. So let's begin in Exodus chapter 12, beginning in verse 12. God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the, in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to, to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lintel... And on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, you shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt 
when he struck the Egyptians but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshiped. Then the people of Israel went and did so, as the Lord had commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, your word is real food. And your son, the night he was arrested, uh, he prayed for us and you heard him. He prayed that you would sanctify us by the truth. And he said, your word is truth. So we ask that, Lord, that you, that you work in us, that you consecrate us, that you sanctify us by your word. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I, I think I've mentioned before that I don't, I, I don't know a lot about hashtags or which ones are cool or which ones are not. But uh, it, as far as a hashtag where the first time I saw it, it was love at first sight, was the hashtag humblebrag. Do you know what a humblebrag? As, so, as soon as I saw the name, I knew exactly what it was talking about. And I thought, this just gave me the word for this thing that I, I see online. So like when someone, like maybe a more famous kind of supermodel-y kind of person, you know, posts and says, ah, oh, exhausted but grateful after a successful photo shoot in Milan. Mm, boy, the gratitude just, it just hits you right there. In other words, I'm a supermodel and I just had a photo shoot in Milan. Um, I saw one online, I don't know if this is true, but I think it was where somebody had actually posted, your inflatable inner tube is actually cooler than my yacht because you're closer to the water. Okay. Translation, I have a yacht, and you don't. Uh, I, I'm going to propose to you this morning that before the humble brag had been identified <laughs> and, uh, and hashtagged, that the church knew how to humble brag. And uh, it takes different forms, but what, what a humble brag from the church might sound like might be, uh, you know, in this day and age where, where our culture is just really deteriorating and, uh, and people don't care about truth anymore, they don't care about morality anymore, they don't care about the family anymore, I, I'm so glad that I'm in a community that, that still loves God and believes the Bible. And pretty much what flavors that kind of statement is there's us and there's them. And us are good and them are bad. I, I want to put this passage before you as a great leveler. And I think if we'll really listen, there's something powerful about how, it's not the only one that does this, but I think... This part of God's Word is extremely important in the big picture of the Bible, and especially the Old Testament. But it places human beings on a level playing field, which is where we should be. Not in a pecking order, level playing field. 
And, uh, and something that I like to, to say, and if you've been around, you've heard me say this, and uh, you, I don't want to sound like a one-trick pony, but when, uh, when you come to a passage and you're not quite sure what to do with it, and, and you're not quite sure, how do I get from this passage to the good news, what the Bible calls the good news, especially in the Old Testament where it might not be so obvious, two questions you can ask of a passage can really help you out. Uh, the two, and some of you already know the two questions. What does this passage show me about us who need redeeming, who need saving? What does this passage show me about God who does the redeeming and who does the saving? So what, what does the passage show me about us who need it? What about God who, who does it, provides it? So let's, let's just use that template on Exodus 12. Let's start with ourselves. What, what do we see about ourselves in this passage? And let me throw out a couple of things. First one is that, I'm going to say we, because the Israelites are the people of God in the Old Testament. The church is identified as the people of God in the New Covenant, but the church is actually dubbed Israel. In fact, this relates to some of the stuff that Adam was saying, the reason that Paul will call uh, Gentile Christians the new circumcision is because there's one people of God. Listen to how God implicitly shows the Israelites that you are like the Egyptians. Now, now how does he show that? Look in verse 13, first off. Look in the second part of verse 13. When I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So he's already saying there's got to be this thing present to differentiate you from the Egyptians. It's not just enough for you to be ethnically Israelite, descended from Abraham. There has to be this thing that differentiates you or something's going to happen. Now, what's the something else? Look down in verse 22, second part of verse 22. When this happens, when the blood is on your door, when the destroyer, and that's kind of a mystery because God says, I'm going to do it and the destroyer is going to do it. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. Now, what's the implication? If you go, even if you applied it, you're an Israelite, you heard Moses, you got your hyssop, you got your lamb, you sacrificed it, you put the blood on the lentil and the doorpost. Even if you do that, do not go out. Now, that should tell you something. If you go out, what is falling on the Egyptians is going to fall onto you. Now, what is the implication? You're ripe for judgment, too. And I don't know how that hits you, because you might think, man, these are the people that are enslaved. These are the people that have gotten the shaft. They've been oppressed. They have to be rescued. God's rescuing them. Why, why would there be such a big deal about don't even walk out? Okay, understand this. The people who are going to be rescued in the Exodus, this is really important. The people who are going to be rescued this night are going to be let out. They're going to see some of the biggest technicolor miracles anyone sees in the Bible. And they're going to make idols in the wilderness, right on the hills of it, and worship them. And God knows that. Don't step out. You deserve judgment too. All right, so the second thing is this. 
and I've really already kind of said it, the blood is the difference. Okay, on that night, the, the, the big differentiator, again, is not ethnic. It's not that you're descended from Abraham. That's not it. The big differentiator that night is the blood. And, and listen to how God talks about this. Go back to verse 22, the, the first part. Take a bunch of hyssop. That would just be something that if you got a handful of stalks, it'd be like a paintbrush. Take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood of that lamb that's in the basin. Touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that's in the basin. Now, that was what you did with it, but look at what he says back in verse 13. First part. The blood shall be a sign. Now, you would almost expect him to say, to me. I'll see that, and I'll know that your house is different. Or, the blood shall be assigned to the destroyer, however that works. It says that the blood shall be assigned for you. That what makes you different is not your goodness, not your life, not your ethnicity, not your pedigree, and not even your oppression. What makes you different that night is identification with that blood. Uh, think about this. Contrast the humble brag that I started out with, not the yacht one, but the church one. Um, man, you know, I'm, so, I'm so glad that I'm with people that read the B-I-B-L-E. I'm so glad that, I, that, that this is a community that loves God and still believes in the Ten Commandments. Okay, contrast that with what you get in the Bible when the prophet Isaiah, this is when he's a prophet, when he saw God. This is in Isaiah chapter 6. When Isaiah saw God on the throne, he said, woe, what's the rest of it? Is it, wow, woe to the Israelites because he is about to drop the hammer on them. The first thing he says is, woe is me. For I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he recognizes his, his cultural context. And I dwell among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the Lord. It, it, it's when you get a sense of the holiness and the greatness and the power of God. And the judgment that people like us deserve. Not people like them out there deserve people like us deserve because of what we do and because of what we're capable of. It's when you get that that God seems more like God. And it, I don't know if you caught this. Look, uh, look at the end of verse 27. God gives Moses the instructions. Moses gives the leaders the instructions. And they give it to the people. It says at the end of verse 27, and the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Now, I, again, I don't think you can ever just give one silver bullet answer to somebody's struggle or frustration. But if, if, if you're here this morning, and, and maybe it's not your first time, maybe you, like, you've been coming for a while, or you've been coming for a few months, or maybe you grew up in the church, I don't know. But if you've been coming and you, you, like your heart feels disengaged, it really could be that what's up underneath that is that 
you, somewhere along the line, you lost a sense that if God gave me what I deserved, it would be that I perish. Uh, I, I know when I first became a Christian that if somebody had asked me, I mean, God really worked in my life and opened my eyes. But I think even after my eyes had been opened, if someone had asked me, hey, Brian, if God gave you what you deserve, what would that be? I think I would have said, oh, nothing. And I would have thought, man, that is humble. But that would biblically be inaccurate. Because what I deserve is justice is for God to manifest His holiness on a lawbreaker. And it's not because He's mean, that He's a bully. If God were mean, we'd know it. But because it is just to punish lawbreaking. And I walk all over His law, all the time. It's a real leveler. You deserve judgment too, and what differentiates you from those Egyptians is not your pedigree. It is that blood of that lamb. What do we learn about God? Um, at least a couple of things. First off, this is a little bit of a surprise. You would expect him to say, I'm going to execute judgment on Egypt. Or, I'm going to execute judgment on Pharaoh. Now, you do get some language like that, but look at, what, at how God describes it in verse 12. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And get this. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And I want to read this to you. It actually says this again in the books of Moses, in, in the book of Numbers, it describes that the Egyptians, quote, were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had, str uh, had struck down among them. Oh, excuse me, let me start over. The Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. This is really interesting because this sheds light on why the ten plagues are what they are. Because if you read about these ten plagues, it can just kind of look like parlor tricks, like, and frogs, you know, and locusts. All the plagues correspond to Egyptian deities. Uh, the plague begins in the Nile. The Nile was deified. There was a name by which the Nile god was worshipped. Second plague, the frogs. There was an Egyptian deity who, who manifested himself in a frog-like shape. You can find it in hieroglyphics and in art. The God of Egypt was Pharaoh. And the way you knew who the next God of Egypt was going to be was Pharaoh's firstborn. And so the way God manifests his judgment is you will feel this judgment at the very point of your false gods. You worship frogs, I'll cover you with frogs. Worship the Nile, I'll make the, the Nile treacherous. It'll become blood. Give your heart, worship, bow down, and, uh, and give Pharaoh the honor to which only I'm due. 
I'm going to extinguish the firstborn. It's a judgment on your gods. That God judges false gods. Um, before I go to the second thing, that's where I want, to, I, I want us to pause as we're thinking about this being a passage that makes life a level playing field. You and I, I would say pretty much across the board in this room, we don't have little statues and shrines. You might, but you would be way in the minority. We don't have little statues. We don't have little shrines. What we do is we just take some part of creation and we make it ultimate. And we try to get that thing to be and do what only God can be and do. Now, for them, it was the Nile or fertility or agriculture or the sky and weather. What is it for us? Well, you know, like if you're a parent, take your child and just make your child ultimate. Put all your hopes and dreams on your child. Derive all your energy from your child. Live vicariously through your child. It doesn't feel like idolatry. It feels like you're an awesome parent. It's worship. And if you think I'm being extreme, let me hide behind Jesus. Always a good idea to hide behind Jesus. Uh, Jesus actually had the audacity to say, unless you hate your father and your mother and your sister and your brother, your child, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. Now, are, are we really supposed to hate our families? It's a Semitic way of making a point really hard. All your allegiances, even your family, and first century Middle East, family is big. Even the allegiance to your family is to pale in comparison to your allegiance to me, or you can't be my disciple. You know, in the end, when God finally, ultimately, not in one place on the globe, but when God finally judges all humanity's false gods, people like us will be involved in the judgment. No, I didn't bow down to the Nile, uh, to the Nile River. I just gave everything to work. There's no time for serving others. There was no time for deep friendships. There was no time for generosity. There was no time for the poor. I bowed down to work. And God will, will let us know how he feels about that. God judges false gods. But here, here's the amazing thing, because God is just, but justice is not God's only quality. It would be awful if justice was God's only quality, and it is His quality. But God protects His people from Himself. And I tell you, I, I, you look at this passage, and you just so, it, okay, I, this, this borders on irreverence, so... Hear me out. I don't want to be irreverent. But it's like you want to get God off the hook. It's like, you, you, like there's some mention of a destroyer, and that's kind of a head-scratcher. And It's not the only place like that in the Old Testament where God will say, you know, I'm going to send my angel ahead of you. I'm not going to go with you. I'll send my angel ahead of you. But then the angel will talk and be identified as God, and it's kind of a head-scratcher. So he says, uh, the, des the destroyer won't visit your houses so you, want to, you almost want to say, okay, there's just some kind of super sinister 
death angel. It's not God doing it. The Bible just could not be more explicit. Who is striking down the firstborn? Verse 13. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Look down in verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The Lord's the one doing it. But the Lord is the one saying, take that lamb, shed its blood, put it as the marker on your door, your house where the whole of your life is sort of represented by this one building. You be behind that door. Don't go on the other side of that door. And I will protect you from me. With that in your mind, go back to verse 13. The blood shall be a sign, not for, not for Egypt, not for me as God. The, the, the blood shall be a sign for you. With, with that in your ears, think about, you get to the New Testament, you get to the Gospels, and there's this guy who gets everybody ready for the Messiah. At least that's his mission. And all these people come out to him. And they sort of don't know, what, is he the Messiah or what's about to happen? But when this guy named John the Baptist, when he sees Jesus one day, and he's with his disciples, he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How do those words hit you? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Because if, if we're not careful, it can sound like Lamb, innocent Jesus pure Jesus, wholesome Jesus, and he is all that. But what John is saying is, all those lambs, all those Passovers could not do it. You think about just all the little lamb carcasses in whatever little townships and village where the Israelites live, all those carcasses. Does God just have it in for lambs? When they built the temple in Jerusalem, when Solomon built the temple and he dedicated it, they sacrificed 120,000 lambs. Just carnage. Does God have it in for lambs? Every lamb is a sign. And what do signs do? Do signs point to themselves? Signs point to something else. Every lamb was pointing where John the Baptist is pointing, God has sent us his lamb, and he's a man. God has sent us the true Israelite. He's the one man who deserves to be passed over. And God is going to strike him so that he'll pass over us. And I really want you to embrace that. I, I want you to embrace that, whether you're embracing it for the first time or for the 10,000th time. Some people, 
go to bed, especially if it's somebody from the South and from a church background, they just wonder, am I right with God? And maybe I need to ask Jesus into my heart one more time or pray the prayer one more time. Do you know what you need? You need to take God at his word that if that lamb is struck down for you and his blood is on your house, you will never be visited by the destroyer. And God won't just pass over you. He'll cleanse you and accept you and welcome you and inhabit you. But maybe you're here and you've been a professing Christian and a churchgoer for decades and you're so stale inside, so flat, and you're not talking to God and you're not listening to God and His Word. And it's not because you're rejecting Him outright. It's just... You have forgotten along the way who you are and who God is. And I think he's nudging on you this morning because he's loving like that. And he's nudging you to say, do you remember that the only thing that differentiates you from another person is that I rescued you. That the blood of my son is on your door. Because I love you. That has the power to renew you. I'm going to read one more thing and I'm done. Um, I've read this before, but John Bunyan, if you've, if, you, if you've ever heard of the book Pilgrim's Progress, he, uh, he read an autobiography called Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And, and he's talking about one day when he was just really struggling with what we would call, I think, depression. And about how bad he is. And he's walking around musing about how awful he is, and he's just ripe for judgment from God. And, and here's what he says. I remember that one day as I was musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart, that scripture came into my mind. He hath made peace by the blood of his cross, by which I was made to see again and again that God and my soul were friends by his blood. I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through his blood. This was a good day to me. I hope I shall never forget it. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, there's many things we can pray right now. What what we would pray is that we would not be jaded or desensitized or thankless or bored by the blood of your Son, the Lamb. That whether for the first time or the 10,000th time, that we would see that that's what I need and that is my hope. And I'm no better than anyone else, but if I have that blood, I have everything. Drive that deep down in our hearts, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.